0: Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that still loves a good daisy print. I'm your host, Amanda. We have an awesome mini so today. I'm really excited about it. <laughs> Today's mini so is all about a brand near and so, so dear to my heart iconic 90s teen catalog brand, Delia's. Woo! When I first began researching the rise and fall of this beloved brand, I wasn't sure what I would find. Honestly, in my mind, it had just kind of disappeared one day. Like I couldn't tell you when or where it just wasn't there anymore. But the story was so much more exciting than I imagined, or at least exciting for me as a retail nerd, (laughs) it was exciting to look back at Delia's as an adult and understand what happened to Delia's. How did it rise? How did it fall? I can't wait to tell you all about it. I received my first Delia's catalog in 1993 the year the brand launched. Probably because I already subscribed to Teen, 17, Mademoiselle, YM, Sassy. I loved a magazine and my wall was covered with collages of magazine photos. I'm just covered. Later I started buying Spin and Rolling Stone and Alternative Weekly, or maybe it was called Alternative Press, I'm not really sure, all the music magazines. And so those collages overtook all my fashion collages, but they were still, it was like a wallpaper. A wallpaper of magazine photos. My mom ripped them down as soon as I went to college. <laughs> in a pre-internet, pre-email era, your mailing address was solid gold to companies that already had it. It wasn't surprising to receive random samples, catalogs, and magazines in the mail after you already started subscribing to something. Like, this is this is just how it was, right? And Delia's was love at first sight for me. I lived in rural Pennsylvania, where the shopping was pretty non-existent. The internet didn't exist yet, so it was hard to even know what was happening in the outside world. Like, I saw cool shit and sassy that I could never afford, and I couldn't even figure out how to buy it. Like, how was I going to buy a pair of John Fluvog shoes when the store was in Manhattan? I think it's important for context to explain a little bit about what it was like to be a teenager in the 90s. Especially a teenager whose interest was a little bit less mainstream. Obviously closed shopping was difficult if you weren't into the usual stores, like Limited, Express, Gap. I mean, Express was the coolest store at my school. Like that was what the rich and popular girls wore, Express. So sure catalogs existed, but they, they were primarily for like department stores, sort of like Sears, Or really specific grown-up brands like Spiegel, my mom shopped from that one, and the Vermont Country Store. I remember we would get that around Christmas and there were a lot of flannel nightgowns in it. And remember, the internet didn't exist yet. So in rural Pennsylvania where I lived, there was nary a vintage store or even a skate shop unless I got someone to drive me 45 minutes to Lancaster where there was a cool vintage store called Checkered Past that also sold Manic Panic. And I think there was another store outside Harrisburg, so like another 45-minute drive, that sold Doc Martens and some of the skate brands. I mean, that, that was it for cool shopping. So I did most of my shopping at thrift stores. There was an incredible Salvation Army in York where I scored so much great 70s clothing. I mean, this was the golden era of thrifting that my friends and I still pine away about. There was also a place in Harrisburg called Rubens where everything was 25 cents a pound. So it was like a proto-Goodwill bins, but only for clothes. And I don't know where these clothes came from. They were just in a big pile. They definitely were destined for a landfill. And they were always from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Like sometimes I would see stuff there that was even older. So I had all these sick outfits, right? I looked pretty styling. I look back and I'm like, wow, I was way cooler than I knew I was. (laughs) But wearing thrift store clothes to my school in the early 90s meant that I was immediately a freak, a weirdo, you name it. And people used to yell Punky Brewster at me in the hallway. If you don't know who Punky Brewster is, Google it now. (laughs) But I knew in my heart that my style was sassy magazine improved. And that meant everything to me. If I had been teleported to a big city, I would have been instantly cool and popular or at least that's how I saw it and that kind of gave me the confidence when I definitely didn't have a lot of confidence to go to school and walk around and know that how I looked was okay you know you know how it is when you're a teenager and this isolation extended to all facets of life if you wanted to hear a new band you had read about in sassy you could hope someone at school had the album already and was willing to copy it onto a blank cassette for you and I I don't – it's a condition that has existed as long as I have lived where it seemed like, especially when I was a teenage girl, but to a lesser extent when I was in my 20s, that it was always the boys who had all the records, right? They had vinyl collections before anyone else did. They had all the CDs. They had all the tapes. If you wanted to hear – something cool they probably had it whereas girls didn't as much and maybe maybe because there was weird sexism around music I mean that there's no maybe we know that that's real but I also think girls are spending money on prom dresses and makeup and clothes in a way that teenage boys aren't maybe that's where it starts I don't know I would love to read a book about why loving music is so gender specific but so if you wanted someone to copy something onto a tape for you, it could be complicated, right? Because if it was another female friend, then it was no big deal to copy tapes and CDs for them. But if you asked a boy or you copied a tape for a boy, which I did a couple times too, that was a whole thing and not worth the confusing conversations and gossip that would result from this like tiny incident of piracy. So then you could go to the record store and spend your limited cash on a tape or a CD and I remember them being so expensive in relation to like what I made at my job. You know, like I made $4 an hour. A CD was going to be almost 20 bucks. It was just it was just a lot, right? And plus, you'd have to often spend extra cash on import CDs because somehow all the best music was imported. I, I don't know why. I was just talking about that today with my husband. I, I don't know what was going on there. Because remember, there was no downloading and there was no streaming. And so getting music was... It was something you bought that was expensive and complicated to get. And then you had to know of those bands and albums in the first place because, once again, there was no, like, recommended playlist on Spotify, right? I couldn't sit around and read articles on AV Club or Pitchfork. And so if you wanted to know about bands and albums in the first place, you would have to buy a bunch of magazines to learn what cool people were listening to. And I was lucky because... We finally got cable television in ninth grade, so I could watch MTV. In particular, one hundred and twenty minutes—like I had been begging for cable forever—so that was that was a big deal for me. So, being a teenager in the nineties, it's a lot different than it is now, right? And so, now that you get that context of there not being a lot of cool stuff in your life on the reg. You can see why Delia's was like a gift from heaven for me the day it showed up at our house. Now I could buy clothes that were more like what I was seeing in magazines and it didn't have to be this epic undertaking. I wasn't going to have to beg someone to drive me hours to buy cool clothes. Of course, I was going to have to get my mom to write a check and that was going to be its own thing. But that was still easier than asking someone to drive me to Baltimore or Philadelphia to go shopping. Of course, I was broke AF. As you know by now, if you're a regular listener, my family was not well off. In fact, we hovered right above the poverty line with some better years and some worse years when I was growing up. So Delia's felt expensive to me, but it wasn't out of reach. I saved my babysitting money and I worked all summer long. In fact, some summers I worked two jobs at a day camp on the weekdays and a convenience store on the weekends, so I could afford to buy some Delia's stuff here and there and at some point along the way my grandma discovered the Delia's outlet in Reading like a true overstock from the catalog outlet the sort of shopping adventure that no longer exists in this world like a true gem anyway what I'm saying is that for me Delia's was aspirational and I know it was the same for millions of other teenage girls of that era every brand that has existed in our lifetime has dreamed of being aspirational to someone That's why luxury commands the price it does. It's universally aspirational. And I've been in meetings upon meetings upon meetings during my career where we've talked about our dream product offering being aspirational to our customers. You know, sometimes we've nailed it, sometimes we haven't. The internet tells me that the purest definition of aspirational is having or characterized by aspirations to achieve social prestige and material success. In other words, acquiring things from an aspirational brand feels like a goal, something you earn. And when you achieve this goal by owning things from this brand, you will be someone better than you are now. We've all had these feelings about some brand or another, right? I think I've had a harder time feeling that level of aspiration, of desire for any brand in the past few years, but I don't know, maybe that's because the landscape has been kind of uninspiring. Maybe I demand more. Maybe I'm unimpressed by the products of Clever Marketing because I've been so deep within them for so long. It's hard to say. But outside of the Esprit bag, I dreamed of owning in junior high, which, by the way, never happened. And so I still hope to find a vintage one someday. Delia's was the first brand that roused those strong feelings of all caps, need, want, covet. Even now, looking at scans of old catalogs makes me feel kind of giddy and inspired and excited and like I wanna go make outfits and have a new style. So now you know how I feel about this brand. The love is still there. And I suspect many of you Close Horse listeners feel the same way. I wanna tell you a brief related story that happened in my adult life. It's about Delias, (laughs) of course. I'm gonna start by saying this. And it's specifically based on my own observations and a few conversations with friends who share a similar background. When you grew up poor, you worry about money for the rest of your life. It's on your mind all the time. Not just when you're negotiating a salary or thinking about bills or dreaming of buying a house. The fear of being poor is always there. I have regular nightmares about being evicted, of all my teeth falling out, of finding that my checking account is empty, I could go on and on. Now more than ever I'm having these nightmares, but I've always had them. When you are like myself and you grew up poor, when you came from a largely disadvantaged background, the sense of imposter syndrome never goes away. Maybe you can have a good job, be good at what you do, have nice clothes, seem put together, but you're always afraid that everyone knows you're not one of them. Maybe your imperfect teeth will give you away, or someone will look up your family on Facebook and you hear mean classist remarks all around you all the time. It never ceases to amaze me how many people who would never ever say something overtly racist, out loud at least, around coworkers or f- certain friends or just generally in public. Maybe they're doing that at home, but that's, that's a whole other thing and I'm not saying that they aren't racist in their minds and their other behaviors and microaggressions either, but just like they wouldn't declare something racist on Slack at work or like in a meeting. Those people would never do that, but they have no problem making fun of poor people. Speaking to this like one dimensional idea that people who are poor are lazy and stupid. It's just, it's like it's socially acceptable to hate poor people. Ask how many times I've had to hear jokes about white trash or trailer trash. In fact, I was part of a larger social group in Portland that I completely divorced myself from after most of the women in the group spent the weekend at a vintage RV park and hashtagged everything trailer trash. I can only assume it's 10,000 times worse for people of color and probably 20,000 times worse for people of color who grew up poor. I'm not trying to say that my own imposter syndrome is the biggest tragedy that's happening in our world right now, but it's there with me everywhere I go. And as I've made a career in buying, I've been surrounded by people who come from a much more upscale background than I did. You know. But I pass, right? I like, from the outside, I fit in. I would seem to, right? So here's the story. I was at work and I brought up Delia somehow. Once again, this was not that long ago. I, I think it probably came up because the wave of 90s nostalgia was cresting. My boss, who, like many of the people I worked with, came from an incredibly privileged background, said oh, my mom never bought me stuff from Delia's. And I so stupidly said, oh yeah, neither did my mom because my mom thought it was too expensive. Which was true. And maybe she was right. Maybe it was too expensive for what it was. (laughs) We're a very thrifty family. My boss practically spat back at me like she was offended. No. She wouldn't buy me stuff from Delia's because it was cheap and trashy. She bought my clothes from J.Crew and they were nice. You know what? I felt like such an asshole, like this brand that I admired, that I aspired to own was cheap and trashy, which by extension meant that I also was cheap and trashy. To be honest, by the time I reached a point in my life where I could afford J. Crew, I thought it was so deeply uncool that it never even occurred to me to buy something there. But it was certainly far, far, far out of reach for me when I was a teenager. It was then, at this moment, that I knew I would never fit in at this job. That maybe people would respect what I did and appreciate my experience. But they would always know that I was not one of them. And I would reap the repercussions down the road. And you know what? I did. However, I still maintain that Delia's was aspirational. The marketing, the design, the assortment. It's what brands try to do today over and over again, and yet they can never nail it. To believe that Delia's is trashy or worthy of contempt, to feel that way is to dismiss something that laid the groundwork for every brand that came after it. To scoff at Delia's is to say you care nothing about understanding your customer, and you don't want to give her anything to daydream about, because you don't even know what's in her daydreams. As a person who geeks out about branding, marketing, and understanding customers, I just can't not love what Delia's accomplished. In a pre-internet, pre-social media era, somehow they nailed it. Via mail. That's right, ye old snail mail. Mail, my friend. So, without any further ado, let's get into the story of Delia's. And I'm sorry for the public therapy session but I also have to say it's not the only time that Delia's and J. Crew are gonna be mentioned in the same sentence in this episode. Funny how things like that work, right? Okay, so first off, let me tell you something that blew my mind. <laughs> Delia's was in business until 2015. Like what? I thought I had disappeared years before. In fact, the last day of business was March 11th, 2015 when Delia's officially said goodbye after a massive clearance sale and just shut down its website. The company had filed for bankruptcy in December 2014. Just a few months before that, shares of the company had been trading at a mere 19 cents each, and the NASDAQ was actually threatening to give the brand the boot if the stock price didn't rise above $1 soon. For some context there, because I too have no idea how much shares and things cost, when I was researching this episode, Gap stock was trading at $14. So this is clearly a pretty dire situation for Delia's. How did they get there? Well, sales were declining each quarter, down 17 to 25% from the previous year. The industry, we call this a negative comp, and it means your sales are less than they were last year. And this can be disastrous. Most companies aren't planning for a negative comp. In general, Businesses target some level of growth each year, even if it's just a slight bump up like say 2% or something like that. And maybe if your business was really mature, meaning its sales had leveled out, which happens over time as you've pretty much acquired all of the new customers you'll ever get, because it's a mature business, it's been around for a while, then maybe, and I mean, maybe you would plan sales to be flat. Flat sales means they would be the exact same as the previous year. This is a pretty unusual practice, but to be honest, in my professional opinion, more companies should probably consider this. It could prevent a lot of inventory burning, as we've p- spoken about in previous episodes, and you know, people losing their jobs because the budget for the company is based on a sales plan that's not achievable. So there's a shortfall in budget and people lose their jobs. It's a lot of what's happening right now in 2020. So planning a negative comp like Delia's was having for your sales plan is pretty unusual. That said, plenty of retailers have revised their 2020 sales to be lower than 2019. But a global pandemic and whatever terrible thing is happening in our economy right now is pretty unusual to say the least. So knowing all of this... It seems unlikely to me that Delia's was planning for negative sales. So this miss could have devastating effects. Okay, first, there's the previously mentioned budget issues. Delia's annual operating budget, meaning all the money it can spend for that year, would have been directly tied to a sales plan that was clearly missed. So now it's time to start thinking about cutting expenses and that could range from, Cutting shipping expenses by renegotiating with the shipping carrier to maybe holding off on some new hires to actually laying off some employees. And these declining sales lead to excess inventory. Because remember, inventory is tied to a sales plan. When you miss your sales plan, you're left with too much inventory. But you still paid for that inventory. So you're spending cash that you aren't making back. You're also still paying for your warehouse, your employees, your stores, Etc. In this way, missing your sales plan also leads to a negative cash flow situation. That means you don't have enough money to keep moving forward. And in the first half of 2014, Delia's lost about $26 million. That was just in the first half of the year. Delia's warned at the end of the quarter in its Form 10Q filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission that. If trends continued, quote, the company will not have sufficient liquidity to meet its anticipated cash requirements through the next 12 months. Basically what they're saying is we don't have money to pay our bills if our sales don't improve. I should also say at this point that I was really surprised to learn that Delia's was publicly traded. So at this time, it was October 2014, the CEO, Tracy Gardner, said that several companies had reached out to discuss acquisition, otherwise known as buying Delia's, right? So it seemed like that might happen. Unfortunately, a buyer never came through. And in December, the brand filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and it worked out a deal to liquidate all of its inventory and assets, otherwise known as a massive clearance, right? And that was the end. At this time, the brand still had 95 retail stores and thousands of employees. They all lost their jobs, the stores closed, the inventory all went away, and the website closed up shop. So let's go back to the beginning, because that's the only way we can explain what happened in the end. Delia's was founded in 1993. It was founded by Stephen Kahn and Christopher Edgar, former college roommates who set up shop in New York City's West Village. So what I'm saying is Delia's was founded by two men this blew my mind. Of course, it was the 90s. So okay, yeah, only men can probably start businesses in the 90s. In the beginning, they focused on college age women. It was kind of meh. Primarily, they distributed their catalogs via college representatives. I mean, they mailed out some, but it was it was a small sampling and I am pretty certain that I received one of those first catalogs but I also was subscribing to Mademoiselle at the time and that was primarily a magazine for college-age women so it makes sense that they maybe would have had some access to that mailing list. In that first year when they were just focusing on these college-age women, they hit $139,000 in sales. Not very much was left after they deducted the cost of the inventory and in the catalogs. Very small business, right? But they decided to pivot when they realized they could make more money catering to the younger crowd of teenage girls all across the country. Teenage girls were the fastest growing part of the population in the mid to late 90s. All those millennial girls were starting to grow up. And they had money to spend. According to the New York-based RAND Youth Poll, in 1997, girls between the ages of 10 and 12 spent just $2.60 per week on clothing, which makes sense. Like, how often were you buying clothes in fifth grade right but their older sisters aka the teenage girls were using a powerful combination of allowances, part time jobs birthday cash, babysitting money and their parents credit cards to drop an average of $28.95 on clothing and accessories that's about $50 in 2020 money and $50 a week sounds like a lot for a teenager even now but I would suspect teenage girls are probably spending even more money now So they made this decision to pivot to these girls. I mean, they had all the money. And you know what? It worked. Sales increased to more than $5 million the year they made that shift from $139,000. Pretty huge. Through Delia's, small town and suburban girls finally had the opportunity to dress like they lived in a major cosmopolitan city. Thanks to strategically placed advertisements in teen magazines, the demand for Delia's catalogs grew. And as an avid magazine subscriber, I can attest that the ads were everywhere. And it seemed like everyone was talking about Delia's overnight, like all my friends in late 1996, with more than 1 million names in its database and sales at more than $30 million, they took Delia's public. So this is when Delia's became a publicly traded corporation. The IPO, which is the initial offering raised approximately $20 million. Six months later, a secondary offering brought in another $20 million. I mean, this is huge. And in 1997, they opened my beloved outlet store in Reading, PA. They were were making some moves. So let's think about what it was like to go shopping in the 90s. As I've mentioned, it was hard for girls who lived in suburban and rural areas. You were limited to whatever your mall offered, and it was usually the standard stuff like Gap, Express, Limited, department stores. We briefly had a Benetton at our mall, but I didn't know anyone who could afford to shop there. And then it closed anyway. If you weren't the sort of girl who was motivated solely by branding like a spree and guest, you were out of luck when it, when it came to going shopping. There just wasn't anything out there. Delius was unique because it had no brick and mortar stores to fall back on for driving sales. And as we've discussed before, physical stores can be both a financial burden and a useful marketing tool. So can, It's like a blessing and a curse. <laughs> Delius was all about the catalog. In a 1997 Los Angeles Times article, the company's CEO claimed that Delia's had convinced its private investors of its unusual Magalog business model. In case you were wondering, Magalog is a combination of magazine and catalog. You knew that, right? They'd convinced its investors of the genius of this Magalog model by comparing it to MTV. We told them to think of us as a channel through which you can program different types of apparel brands. This is what their CEO claimed. We, like MTV, stay constant, but we'll provide them with a constantly changing assortment of designs and brands. And to be fair, in so many ways, Delia's was ahead of its time. The catalog format, aka magalog, I hate that word. Let's try not to say magalog anymore in this episode. Anyway, this catalog format was more magazine than than like a story within paper format. Like it wasn't just about selling stuff. And so it, it allowed Delia's to sell a lifestyle as well as the products. And this idea of selling a lifestyle has been the directive behind almost every brand you know today. So when you think about it, Delia's foreshadowed the direct-to-consumer fashion revolution, where small startups target very specific demographics with editorial content and media, just as much as they do traditional advertising. In fact, they may never do any traditional advertising, like billboards and television commercials, and they might solely just operate blogs or social media content. I mean, think about that. Nasty Gal, Modcloth, Glossier, Outdoor Voices, all of these brands are following this path trailblazed by Delias. In its heyday, Delias sold the idea that you could look like the models in the catalog. You could live their lives. All you had to do was dial 1-800-DELIA-NY. That's right. You had to either dial the number and pay with a credit card or fill out the form in the center of the catalog and mail it off with a check. What a time to be alive. It It seems like so long ago to me. Okay, so let's talk about all the things Delia's was doing right. I mean, first off, there was the iconic product offering. You know it so well striped crop tops, wide leg pants, chokers, cute backpacks, girl-sized skate sneakers, platform Mary Janes. You can picture it all, right? Even though this company was founded by men, they hired the right women to pick the product, buyers who really understood the customer. And in fact, the majority of both the product and creative teams were women, led by women, and this was really unusual for the 1990s. The buyers were young, either in college or just out of college, and they lived... Dressed, looked just like the girls in the catalog. They were living embodiments of the aspirational brand. The other great thing about Zelia's is they were bringing brands to their customers that they couldn't ordinarily find in their local malls. Sugar, Roxy, Tasty, Rocket Dog, and tons of skate brands that don't even exist anymore. Most of these brands came from LA or New York, so they weren't accessible to anyone who lived in between. There's a lot of space in between those two cities. Some analysts believe that Delia's was the beginning of the death of regionalism, which is this idea of individual culture, fashion and trends being dictated by where you live. Think about how some people call it soda soda and some people call it pop and some people call it soda pop. That was a regional influence, right? This idea of regionalism was completely obliterated by the Internet. Now, there is no region anymore because we live in this world online that links us to everything and to everyone. Over time, Delia's became more and more private label, meaning that the bulk of the product in the catalog carried a Delia's label, but the early years of Delia's helped tons of small brands build up business and gain wider distribution. And Delia's wasn't just clothes and accessories, because remember, it was a lifestyle. There were stickers, pens, school supplies, eventually home decor like cute bedding with matching lamps and curtains. I'm pretty sure at some point there was a weird shaggy fur-covered beanbag chair, but maybe I dreamt that. <laughs> in my dream of this chair, it was purple. If you, if you know of this chair, please get at me. All of these things were incredibly desirable and just so on point for the customer. And another great thing about the stuff in the Delia's catalog, the price was right. The brand's target audience, young women ages 10 through 24, were at the stage in life where they were beginning to find their own voice, and Delia's helped amplify it. The price point for its products were within reach for girls of middle income, and those were the girls that were receiving the catalog at their house anyway. All of the prices were in line with what you would encounter at the mall, but this product was 100 times cooler and way more unique. Somehow it was aspirational without being a luxury price point, and that is the genius part. I'll tell you this. That was also the genius behind Nasty Gal in its heyday. Nothing too expensive, but always cool and unique. Aspirational as hell. Being aspirational without being expensive, that's the special sauce right there. Like, Chanel is aspirational because it's luxury and only some people can afford it. That makes sense. But we rarely think of inexpensive things as aspirational. Like, think about Forever 21. They used to sling a ton of clothes and shoes. But no one ever identified with Forever 21. They never aspired to be seen in Forever 21 clothes. It was more means to an end. So to hit that lower price point and still be something that girls dream of owning, that's just genius. I mean, all brands and retailers dream of achieving that balance and it's it's so hard. Next was the catalog. I mean, it was a masterpiece of design and copy. Seriously, people write nerdy design think pieces about the genius of the Delia's catalog. Keep writing them because I love reading them. So the catalog came out 10 to 12 times per year, not quite every month. I'm sure you can picture the font when you close your eyes. The brand's upper lowercase font mashup with a casually placed asterisk was the epitome of cool early internet chic. It inspired years of slightly obnoxious conversations on AOL Instant Messenger. And, you know, I think it may have carried over into the MySpace era, if I recall correctly. The font itself was inspired by the font used on the cover of my all-time favorite teen magazine, Sassy. Not the Sassy logo but the other font used on the cover to lure you in with exciting promises like 20 prom dresses that aren't disgusting and we take you to the gynecologist. (laughs) I hope this is the last time we say gynecologist on the podcast, but who knows? Who knows what will happen? The copy and the content was also not unlike Sassy. Rather than the how to get a boy to kiss you content of most of the other media aimed at teen girls of this era, the voice was irreverent, casual, empowering. The focus was on the girls and their personal style and lifestyle, not on boys, dating, no mention of the male gaze. There was nothing else out there like this at that time. Charlene Benson was the creative director of photography, and she's responsible for the brand direction general vibe. Here's a quote from her. I didn't want the copy to repeat and say what the person was already saying. I thought of it as an opportunity to have this parallel dialogue with the shopping experience. And there are a couple styles of typography so we could fit a lot on the page, but still have it feel fun and wonderful. In the end, we just just wanted to have some fun. And the line type going through the page kind of gave it some structure. She decided not to have any letter forms stop at the end of a page because she thought it would encourage shoppers to keep turning and reading the catalog's story. And then there was the unique white background photography, also really unusual for that time. Another quote from Benson here. In the beginning, a lot of the design choices were about timeline and budget, but for the most part, the first people that worked on the catalog just wanted something really simple. I loved figures on white, and I was working at Mademoiselle at the time, so I wanted to do something that didn't quite look like what we were doing at Mademoiselle. That explains the fresh look, the minimalism. The catalog also featured free gifts like super hot music CDs and surprise gifts and samples. In addition, the brand really wanted to hear from customers. We're used to that now in the era of Instagram comments, retweets, customer reviews, but how do you accomplish that via snail mail? More from Charlene Benson. Very early on, we were always creating things to drop in the packages, and we made a little postcard where girls could put a picture of themselves to show us who they were. We got hundreds and hundreds of photos, and it was really the beginning of what we see now, where people just can't stop taking pictures all the time. It got them in the conversation, so then we became part of the conversation with them. I love that. It's, it's the pre-internet version of tagging a brand in your Instagram outfit of the day, right? but cooler, like I would love to see just a wall of those postcards. To be honest, the marketing team at Delia's did a few super smart things that went beyond just great art direction. In 1997, the company acquired TSI Soccer Corporation, a privately held direct marketer of specialty soccer apparel and equipment, i.e. a catalog, a soccer catalog. You're like, what, why would you do that? Well, here's why. This added another million names to the Delia's mailing list, giving them the largest database of teenage consumers in the US as of 1997. As we've discussed in previous episodes, your contact info is so valuable. Remember when we talked about Boohoo buying Nasty Gal's intellectual property? What they really wanted was that email list and all of the followers on social media. Well, in the pre-internet era, your mailing address was just as valuable, maybe even more valuable because it was really hard to connect with customers. You could show them ads on television or in print like magazines and newspapers. You could maybe reach some people via radio ads, possibly not teenagers, and you would be kind of limited by what you could sell, like since you couldn't show it to anybody. And of course, (laughs) billboards were around, but once again, like was Delia's gonna take out a billboard? Probably not. So direct mail was the most guaranteed path to connecting with someone. Catalogs tended to buy their mailing lists from marketing companies like there were whole companies that just specialized in collecting and sort of grouping together cohorts of customers that could be sold off to very specific brands. So you could go to a marketing company and say, hey, I'm looking for a list of women between 20 and 25 who have gone to college or who color their hair. They could have some pretty specific data about you probably not to the level that they can get now in the internet age, now that they can follow you around on your journeys each day. But still, they can get pretty specific. Catalogs would also buy their mailing lists from magazines because, you know, there was another company that had your information. And to be honest, magazines were selling your information to all kinds of people. And that's why you would get, as I mentioned earlier, makeup samples and magazines and catalogs you'd never asked for and all kinds of other strange offerings. Like I would get regular mail about summer camp, beauty pageants, modeling school, you name it. The catalogs might even pay other catalogs to share their mailing lists, but they would be more expensive, obviously, right? If you're going to risk losing your customer to another rival catalog, then you definitely wanna be making some bank off of that. But to be fair, selling your customer's information could also give you a little bit of extra income, cash flow, maybe help if you were a little down that season. So investing in new customer info Well, it was just that. It was a good investment that could pay off in a lot of different ways down the road. So building this huge mailing list of teenagers was a priority for Delia's, and it was like setting them apart and giving them an advantage that nobody else had. Okay, that same year, 1997, Delia's did another amazing thing. Delia's acquired girl, as in G-U-R-L. Interactive Inc, Girl Interactive was the owner of girl.com, an entertainment website for girls that featured magazine-style articles, interactive games, bulletin boards, remember those, (laughs) and chat rooms also, remember those? (laughs) The Girl site had been developed by three female students in New York University's interactive telecommunications program, and it had a loyal following of young women just the right age for Delia's fashions. Delia's plan to use this newly acquired website as its cornerstone for a whole teenage web community. And you know what? Girl.com was a perfect fit. In a post-sassy, pre-rookie era, this was the only media outlet for teen girls that spoke frankly and casually about what it was like to be a teen girl. And to be honest, I had a girl.com email address for years and years. (laughs) I think at one point I had business cards that had that email address on it. Very profesh. Okay, actually, I'm remembering I went through a phase in the early aughts where I was really, maybe it was the late 90s. I went through a phase in the late 90s where I was really into this idea of calling cards, you know, sort of a holdover from a bygone era. And so I had my name and my email address and my phone number printed on all these different cards that had like beautiful wallpaper prints and weird scans of collages and stuff that I had made and I would hand them out to people at parties and up in the club and at bars and just around and I felt like it was pretty cool I stand by it anyway like I said those have my girl.com email address on them so at this point I mean they've bought girl.com it would seem that the brand was getting ready to embrace the e-commerce era right well it didn't exactly work out that way but we'll get to that That same year of 1997, clearly a peak year for Delia's, the brand also expanded into home and launched a spinoff catalog for it called Contents. It was initially mailed as an insert in Delia's catalog. I remember this, but it soon began arriving on its own. Yes, it sold cute and cool home furnishings that you couldn't find anywhere else, but it also gave tips on how to decorate all in that special Delia's voice. In 1998, the brand launched Delias.com and it also wasn't just product. There were articles, quizzes, contests, and it all tied back to an expanded girl.com. So you, you can see already how this is setting us up for this era of brands using all these different channels and creating additional content to speak to their customers. Like It doesn't seem like brands rely on blogs in the way that they did five, ten years ago but this was the precursor to this and no one else was doing this. They also bought a huge database of teen addresses from a catalog company called Fulcrum Direct. Company primarily focused on preteens. So what they are saying is like, let's get some more young women into the hopper. By the end of the year, their mailing list contained more than 11 million names, nearly double of the previous year. So you can see they're building up all this intellectual property. They're building an empire. And these are all smart decisions. I, I support everything they've done so far. They also launched Droog, the first ever catalog aimed solely at teenage boys. I don't know anyone who ever bought anything from Droog, so I don't know how successful it was. There isn't very much left of Droog on the internet in 2020, but the scans that I did see were pretty fucking cool. Like really incredible photography and the layout itself was like, it was so modern and both minimal but masculine. It looked very different different than Delia's but you could see that the girls who shopped in Delia's would hang out with the guys who shopped in Droog and that's refreshing to me because one thing I've complained about for years when I would go to market is I would see brands like say Obey and the men's line and the women's line were so completely different like the men's line which to be fair does not look any different than Droog so I do think Droog was on to something there. The men's line at Obey looked like it could be for a cool guy in his 20s, 30s, any age really. But the girls line, and notice I'm saying girls line and not women's line from Obey, always looked like it was for a young girl. Like the guy who wears Obey should not be hanging out with the girl who wears Obey unless they are related by blood. So Droog seemed pretty cool. I'm I would urge you to do some Googling and see what you can find. You have to Google Droog and catalog or you won't find what you're looking for. The company was making so much money, like all caps, so much money. They made $80 million in profit that year. That was after the cost of goods and all the catalogs and all the employees in the warehouse. I mean, this is a strong business. I've worked so many places that dream of that. In 1999, they opened their first store in White Plains, New York. By 2011, there were 115 stores across the US. To me, this is crazy. This is some crazy expansion. As I've mentioned, stores can be a great marketing tool. Like if you somehow don't have a customer's address, they might find you in the mall, great. But at this point with Delia's mailing list being like legendarily huge, This seems highly unlikely to me. Stores are expensive. I cannot underscore this enough. First, there's the rent. And in a mall, it's gonna be a lot. And then you need even more inventory to fill each store because you don't wanna run out of sizes. Like you need to send a pretty decent amount of stock by size by style to ensure that you don't miss out on any customers. You're also going to need fixtures, shopping bags, price tickets, cash registers, employees. I mean, it's so much money. Expanding into this many stores must have cost the company a fortune, an amount of money that we can't even begin to imagine. But they already had such a hold on the teenagers of the world. They were shipping all over the world at this point. I'm not sure they needed the marketing that a store can provide. Honestly, Only benefit I can see of a real live brick and mortar store for Delia's is that it could be easier and less expensive for customers to make returns there. And that assumes technological capability to do a return from catalog in store. Because when I worked in retail in the early aughts, we couldn't process returns from things people bought online. Isn't that crazy to think about? I had a lot of grouchy customers. (laughs) So, anyway, if the only benefit you have is that maybe you could take returns, then otherwise you're looking at a ton of expensive stores that are cannibalizing your catalog sales. Cannibalization is an industry term that means exactly what it sounds like. Basically, just one aspect of your business stealing sales from another part of the business. Simplest example I can think of is denim shorts. Let's say the denim buyer buys into shorts for summer. And obviously, since it's the denim department, they will be denim shorts. Okay, got it. Well, let's say that the shorts buyer, who's a totally different person, also bought into some denim shorts. I mean, I'm going to be honest, she's about to be in some trouble. Clearly, denim shorts are a huge trend in this imaginary shorts-filled world. Well, this would be setting the stage for a showdown between the denim buyer and the shorts buyer because one of them is ultimately about to cannibalize the other's sales. Or, perhaps denim shorts will be a huge flop because we're all wearing sweatpants. Sounds familiar, right? So my verdict when I hear a brand that was built from an e-commerce business, or in Delia's case, a catalog business, when I hear a brand like this expanding heavily into stores, I sense impending financial doom. As you're probably guessing, competitors began to pop up everywhere so there was one catalog called moxie girl their premiere issue they were following this magalog concept had 76 pages because it also had ads ads from other brands and companies that were targeted to teenage girls so they were selling product they had editorial content they also had advertisements i mean you can see how this would almost be confusing for a teenage girl but also it's kind of genius right I have to tell you, I dug and dug and dug to try to figure out what happened to Moxie Girl, and I still haven't been able to figure it out, but I did buy a few things from them here and there, and I remember those Magalogs very well. I know I said I was going to stop saying Magalog, but there it is again. What a terrible word. It's so ugly. Okay, there was another catalog called Girlfriends LA, and this this had that like squeaky clean look of Delia's. but not really as cool I will tell you that at one point they had a young Britney Spears on the cover and they had more than just clothes as well they had temporary tattoo art body paints hand painted designer light bulbs and strangely fragranced pillows <laughs> I mean I would have fallen for all of this I remember getting this catalog and being like eh, it's a little too young for me there's also Airshop which was an internet site and they were also sending out some catalogs and then there was Alloy which also was at this point a pretty strong online business but they were planning to start sending out catalogs too based solely on what they were seeing with Delia's later Alloy acquired Girlfriend's LA so Alloy it seems like is you know trying to build a little bit of an empire here huh I want you to remember Alloy because they're going to come back into the picture a few years later spoiler <laughs> Okay, so things are like gangbusters, right? Like how, based on what I've told you so far, how can Delia's no longer be in business? How did everything fall apart by 2014? Well, it all started in 1999. So just a couple years after everything I was telling you about, when Delia signed on to some very expensive leases on stores. And the stores just weren't making enough money to pay those leases. And then there were a lot of issues with the e-com business. In a story I still can't understand, they tried to spin off Delia's.com into its own company. And then 18 months later, they brought it back in-house. And I mean, to be honest, it just cost them a lot of money and time, millions of dollars. And they just, it was like after that, they just couldn't catch up. Delia's also went on a mega spending spree, buying several children's apparel and sporting gear catalogs. They just were bleeding money. They were opening stores, opening stores, opening stores, buying all these weird catalogs. It was like their eye, they, the prize that they had their eye on was customer information, which is very smart, but they weren't focusing on every, any other aspect of their business, it seemed like. So by 2001, they had sold or closed almost all of their non-core properties. So that included Droog, the boy's catalog, and they sold Girl.com to 17. So by 2003, Delia's was hurting. Ecom wasn't performing. The stores were breaking the bank. Things were very bad. And in swooped Alloy. Remember, I told you to keep them in mind. Despite starting business almost two years after Delia's, they were in a stronger place financially. And that's because they had done a bunch of smart things. Knowing the story better, I'm starting to see it as left brain, right brain in terms of Delia's and Alloy. Like Delia's nailed the creative voice, right? But their business sense just wasn't there. Alloy's branding and catalog was kind of like meh, but they nailed all the important financial business stuff. So when you think about the two of them together, it makes sense, right? I mean, here were all the smart things Alloy had done over the years. They had bought other competitor catalogs. They had never opened brick and mortar stores. They'd resisted the temptation. They bought other marketing companies so they could expand their reach to teenagers. Very smart. And lastly, if you've listened to our previous episodes, you know how important this is. They had nailed the logistics of warehouses and order fulfillment. I mean, that's the stuff that can really drain your coffers, right? And Alloy, through all of their marketing acquisitions, had a bigger database. In 2003, total circulation at Delius was about 35 million, while Alloy's was more like 55 to 60 million. So huge. Alloy bought Delius for a mere $50 million at this point. Delius was troubled, right? Alloy was coming to the rescue. And as I mentioned, this seemed like an amazing plan because this mega company basically own the teenagers of the world. Their mailing list constituted about 40% of US consumers who were 12 to 18 years old. So almost half of American teenagers at this point. But you know what? It just didn't work. And it's a mixture of things, right? The new mega company continued to roll out more and more stores, all under the Delia's umbrella. They were not Alloy stores. But there was a problem. there were new, cheaper competitors on the landscape. H&M, Zara, Forever 21. Their product was incredibly similar to Delia's, but half the price. So yeah, you can also blame fast fashion for killing Delia's. But there's more. Retailers like Sun and Hot Topic brought that like, girl aesthetic to every mall in America. It was no longer special. And in fact, The Delia's assortment seemed more lost than ever. Mostly graphic tees and low-rise jeans. None of the cool factor that it had in the 90s. Basically just boring clothes. And then there were new edgier competitors out there like American Apparel. American Apparel was a little bit more expensive, but it was sexier and cooler. In fact, the cool girls that had once looked to Delia's as their Bible now shopped at American Apparel regardless of age. So... Former Delia's customers and younger customers who had just skipped past Delia's and went right to American Apparel. And so the aspirational quality of Delia's was gone. There was nothing distinctive about them, right? They had no unique value proposition, which is the core of any business's success. And so began the hemorrhage of money. Sales were dropping. The inventory was rising. It's a story we know too well. Desperate times call for desperate measures, right? So Tracy Gardner joined Delia's in May 2013 as CEO. The company really thought it had found a solution to its woes with Gardner. She was part of the team that turned J.Crew, who had been kind of floundering. They were sort of an ordinary preppy clothier with a very specific customer. She led the product team at J.Crew and turned it into a bedrock fashion brand rocked by, you know, First Lady Michelle Obama, like who better to dress at that time? And so that really turned the business around at J. Crew. So she joined Delia's and she brought a- executives from J.Crew and Coach along to help solve the problem. She immediately sold off the struggling alloy business. Now, once again, what? <laughs> when I first read this, I thought I was confused. But yes, at this point, they broke alloy out and they sold it off. Overall, I'm not super shocked by this. It's something that happens when multi-brand companies are struggling. It's similar to J. Crew separating Madewell into its own company. And in 2019, Gap announced that it was going to do the same thing with Old Navy. But after further due diligence, they realized that it was just too expensive and complicated to make that change. But the difference here is that Delia's sold alloy. It's clearly an effort at bringing some cash back into the company at a really desperate time. As I mentioned before, Alloy brought all the business sense to the table. Delia's brought the creative, the brand cachet, the aspirational quality. Well, with businesses tanking all, all around, you don't need the smart, brainy business side anymore because it's not working, right? So they sold it off. And Gardner had this idea. Why not turn the brand into a niche option for wealthier teenage girls by ramping up the pricing, maybe bringing in some expensive shoe and accessory brands? And like, I, I get it. If you're looking at a landscape where you say, we sell the same stuff as everyone else, but it's already a little bit more expensive. So why not make it even more expensive? And then it will gain that aspirational quality by being out of reach of a lot of girls. I get it. But to be honest, I've seen this fail time and time again. Kim and I discussed this, how this happened at Nasty Gal on our e-commerce episodes. And it's happened to other brands as well. Remember, we talked about it happening at Need Supply as well. So... Maybe if this was back in 2013 I hadn't already worked at Nasty Gal and saw how that failed, I might have also thought this was a good idea. I don't know what else they could have done at this point without completely revamping their assortment, and what that would be, I just don't know, knowing what was working on the market at that time. I was discussing the Delia situation with Kim a few nights ago, explaining the new CEO strategy of making things more expensive and niche. She groaned. And so did I. I mean, we've we've been down this road before, but it led to another interesting conversation. For Delia is to bring in a CEO from J.Crew, a wildly different brand and customer base, and expect her to save the brand—well, that was some incredibly naive thinking. I'm not saying she couldn't have done it, but I find it interesting that an individual coming from a far more expensive brand, J Crew, would immediately go for the "let's raise the prices" approach. Almost as if she didn't understand the customer. Because here, the thing is, we're talking about teenage girls, and yes, they can get money from their parents, but there is a lower ceiling on their income unless they're like heiresses or something. So you have to understand that fundamental fact about your customer. You need to understand what kind of money your customer is working with. I mean, among many other things. Because that's what being a successful buyer, merchant, and strategist is all about. It's not about being the customer. You don't have to be the same age as your customer or live her life, but it's about getting into her head, consuming the media she consumes, watching her live her life, speak her language, know how she thinks. For me, it's the most fun part of it all. I love understanding people. I love getting to know people that I don't know. Kim pointed out that often in a situation like this where the leader comes from a more expensive brand with a totally different customer base there's a fundamental lack of understanding the customer. Almost a disinterest in getting to know her. Almost a disdain for who she is as a young girl. And here we come back to classism, but we merge it with sexism and just a general disregard for young girls. Like Serving teenage girls is almost embarrassing for some people because if you're that kind of person, teenagers are foolish. They have bad taste. They don't know what they want. They don't have any money, but let's just trick them anyway. Let's make things more expensive so they're confused into thinking it's more valuable. And that might not be what happened here, but I've lived through some situations and observed some situations that ended up like this and began in the same place. And they did all have that in common, that the individual steering the assortment strategy, meaning the person who was declaring what what we the buyers would be buying, didn't think that our customer knew what was best for her. They wanted to dictate what the customer was going to want instead of letting the customer tell them what she wanted. So this didn't work, right? The deal was sealed. Delia's declared bankruptcy a year later. I mean, this revamped assortment never worked, even for a minute. So within a year, it was over. As we know, in early 2015, the website went down for good. The inventory went away. Later that year, Steve Russo of a company called Fab Starpoint acquired the brand for a mere $2.5 million dollars. Remember how just 10 years earlier, Alloy had bought it for $50 million and I thought that was a hot deal? This, this is a bad situation. He briefly reopened the store with an online-only presence, but it, it was incredibly unsuccessful. Once again, like, what did Delia's mean to anybody in 2015? That was kind of a crazy choice to make to buy the company, even though I guess he did get it for $2.5 million. So once again, Delia's is a flop. In recent years, Dolls Kill has been licensing the Delia's brand name and designs to create new products. And it does look a lot like its ancestors, but the quality is egregious. I mean, just really, really bad. Fast fashion at its worst. It almost makes me angry because, you know, I have such a soft spot in my heart for Delia's. Yes, I did order a few things in the first couple collections from Dolls Kill and I had to return them all because they were so bad, but it looks really cute on the page. Alloy is still around, sort of, but the branding couldn't be more different than its skate rave origins. In fact, it seems to focus on clothing for tall women, which, to be fair, is really fucking smart. (laughs) Always the smarty that Alloy, I told you. That's where all the biz smarts are. That lives in Alloy's brain. (sighs) RIP to an incredible era. Still, I mean... Delia's paved the way for the way brands talk to us now. They nailed the voice of their customer. They broke down the fourth wall and spoke directly to their customer like a super cool friend. They presented more than just product. They had actual content. So they were more than just a retailer. They were a lifestyle, a brand that felt like a person you know, like a destination. You felt like you were part of something the catalogs and their smart design and editorial vision they defined the aesthetic of this millennium i look at a brand like lassier and i know they couldn't exist without delias conversely it seems that while brands have been emulating delia's style of marketing and customer connection they haven't really learned from its mistakes as we've seen overexpansion into stores the really ill advised pivot into high price points These things have taken down so many brands over the past few years. I think Delia's is a timely story for 2020 as it was destroyed partially by humorous and partially by a changing tide in the industry, both e-commerce and fast fashion. It couldn't adjust its plan. It couldn't grow with the times. It just couldn't pivot. And that was it, right? Now in 2020, in the midst of both the alleged retail apocalypse and a global pandemic, Brands are dropping like flies. Stuck in their ways for too long, they don't know how to adjust. They forgot to pivot into e commerce, or they were unwilling or unable to make the shift into more sustainable ethical practices. Maybe they were like Victoria's Secret and they were too foolish to offer inclusive sizing. They just continued to move along with the model of selling as much as possible. Everything else be damned. You know what I think? This is the time for you to start your own thing, to do it right to build something magical. Thank you for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Have something you want me to dig into? More long-gone brands to investigate? Drop me a line at Podcast at gmail.com or find us on Instagram at Podcast. Please leave a rating and or a review on Apple Podcasts. Ratings get us on the charts, and the charts bring us more listeners, more people to teach about not giving your money to assholes. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for his endless support and amazing theme music. Bye!